0: Welcome to Sunrise Life, the podcast where we have deep conversations with fellow freelance models. Today, I have Rory Yum on the show. Say hello. Hi. I am so excited that you wanted to do this with me. Well, thank you for asking me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, totally. I, I saw that you just did a trip with my friend Astrid, and I've been following you guys on on social media for like the last few weeks. Oh, we had a really good time. I am delinquent
1: in one video, the Parisian end of the European trip, and I've been making reels out of them. But there's just so much stuff that happened in Paris. I'm finding it really hard to make a one-minute video. I want to make a three-minute 3, three minute video.
0: Yeah. Are you on YouTube also? No. I, I probably at this point should be. Good times. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of work just like cataloging all of the adventures. But I think in in the end, when I've done stuff like that, I always enjoy looking back on it.
1: Yeah, that was kind of my motivation for, and it seems a little silly, but does correlate with modeling for me too, is I have all these adventures and what is found to be really helpful for me to be present in the moment or to even just like notice little things during the day is to capture them with the intent of making like a reel, not just to share with people. It's nice that other people also enjoy it. But for me, I get to look back and go, Oh yeah, I did do that. Or like, Hey guys, this is what I did when I was in Europe. And like, sometimes it's hard to find the words or even to like share something without an image or like a video. And that is a really easy way for need to do that.
0: Yeah. I would say it's kind of like the modern day version of scrapbooking, right? Ah, okay.
1: I love that you said that because when I traveled around previously, I did scrapbook. So I saved everything from like ticket stubs to like movies, to bar napkins, to hostel tickets for checking in. And I would put them in my journal. And I have several of these composition notebooks full of just stuff that I did in different cities.
0: That's so cool. And there's definitely like something about having a physical item over a digital thing, because I also worry like, you know, I take all these pictures, but everything is like on the internet. Like what about when in 50 years from now, how am I going to find those files? Yeah. Well, that's why I always encourage photographers to
1: print their work, whether it's like printing it for a print that they want to put up on a wall or creating a magazine for a while at the beginning of the pandemic, some of the things that I did shifted into creative coaching. And a lot of the folks that I had already had conversations with had come to a head where they were like, I'm not sure why I'm doing this. And I was like, well, let's start with a very simple exercise of curating a magazine just for yourself, not to sell, because I think it alleviates some of that pressure of it having to be this bigger the larger-than-life thing. So if you're doing it just for yourself, it's okay if it's not perfect. It's okay if, like, some of the images don't make sense to anyone but you. And so we curated... That means, like, going through images, culling them, designing a story or narrative out of the images, creating an outlay, like, this image is half of a page and this is going to be a full page, and then printing it. And to see people complete that process and to, like, take on another aspect of photography... Because when you're shooting without the idea of printing, sometimes it also informs the way that you're photographing. Because you're like, oh, I can see this on a giant print. I can see this on a canvas. When I print it this large, this is what's now in focus. Is that really what I want to be in focus? What do I want to convey when someone looks at this image? So it changes the way that you're processing what you're photographing and sometimes even what you're framing.
0: That's a really interesting perspective, uh, thinking about what you're shooting as if you're going to print it. And on the flip side, I've also worked with photographers who seem to be photographing for the intention of posting on Instagram. Like I've done – they asked me to do poses where I'm going to fit into a square and stuff like that for their Instagram feed. And I'm like, that's cool, but is it going to, you know, last the times?
1: I mean – That's a really good question. So I've always considered all the things that I do with photography or modeling my legacy, like what I'm going to leave behind. And I think that that's shown up in the images that I create because I'm willing to push myself in certain ways. And so I think by setting an intent for something, it really shapes a lot of the little decisions that end up steamrolling into bigger decisions. Like you were saying, if you put a frame around a person, you're like, okay, you've got this square. Okay, well, my intent is to put it on Instagram. That makes sense. But what about if you wanted to print it? Are you going to print them in a series of square images? Or is that something totally different?
0: That actually sounds cool. Yeah. (laughs) So at the beginning of
1: the pandemic, I took a job at an arts council as a visual arts director. And I got to spend a lot of time finding artists, defining what art is. Because so many different mediums of art exist, like neon light bending and curating their work and creating stories out of them and then promoting the artist. And it felt like a really natural transition from my job as a freelance model into that role. But it really also opened my eyes to all the different possibilities. So like art from photography doesn't just have to end at like, cool, I created this picture, then I edited it and then I printed it out. It could be printed on several different mediums. It could be a t-shirt. It could be the process of printing that you choose. It could be the first step in a multi-step process where like Pierre and Giles, they're a photography duo, one photographs and one paints over the photograph and then they elaborately decorate the frame. I just didn't realize that there were so many different potential ways of like creating art and that was a really cool experience.
0: I love listening to all these variations that you're describing of just thinking outside the box because maybe a lot of people that I work with and even myself put myself into this little box or th- this is what we're shooting. Oh, and I'm not going to post-process it that, that much because this is the intent. It's just the internet. People are only going to be looking at it on, on their phones, but coming up with ways to do like multimedia art, that's, that's inspiring. Like I'm, I'm loving just the thought of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's fun to like set yourself for different projects, especially when it's for yourself. So it sounds like not just you, but a lot of artists I noticed during the pandemic shifted their intent from I'm creating to fulfill a desire to need to create. And now I'm creating for the commercialization of it. And so sometimes those small shifts in intent changes the way that we're photographing the way that we're capturing because we're like, Oh, This is only going to be consumed for three seconds. So does it need all of X? Probably not. And that's okay. That's not a right or wrong observation. I'm just noticing that, you know, when you set an intention for something, the amount of effort
0: that you give something or don't give something, it really changes. That's amazing. I'm definitely going to delve more into that thought, like in my future. (laughs) I love that. That's so cool that you do creative coaching. And that's, that's just great. I love that. Oh, I appreciate
1: that. I just felt really natural. I was doing them already during sessions. I am really good at being super curious and asking questions. And after that, people would ask me, hey, you know, I had a really interesting conversation with you and I would like to further pursue, you know, what this project might look like. So it could be considered like a project manager. It could be considered a creative coach. It could be a little bit of both. That's cool.
0: Yeah. That's so cool. I might hit you up later. (laughs) Oh, I appreciate
1: that. Yeah, you, I'm sure you have other questions.
0: Yes, I wanted to ask, can you describe for the audience who might not already be aware of Rory, what your history in modeling is, how you got started and how your career has progressed in a nutshell until how it's led you to where you are today?
1: I mean, yeah, those I had some really good questions. Start at the beginning. Okay. Yeah. So, I was pretty young when my legs grew like overnight. And since that, I think it was like 13 or 14, perhaps since that age, people would come up and say, Oh, you should be a model. And when I was really young and super rebellious, I was like, you don't tell me what to do. I'm going to be a rocket scientist and in, in just <laughs> true rebellion fashion. Because in my mind, I thought a model was someone who, you know, was like very pampered and very princess like, and I was anything but as a kid, I was Probably my parents' worst nightmare as a first kid because I wanted to know why, why does this happen? And how does that happen? And when does it happen? And then I would climb trees and my parents would yell at me because I'd be at the top of the tree in the backyard. And they'd be like, those are the thin branches. You're going to hurt yourself, get down. And I'd be like, (laughs) yeah, whatever. (laughs) And then I discovered fine art modeling thanks to Model Mayhem. So again, at that time, when I was, I think, 18, And I was like, well, maybe I'll pursue this modeling thing. I don't really know. I thought the only way that you can model was through an agency. And so I did some internet searching and found Model Mayhem and saw that, okay, well, if I'm not able to be with an agency, because that's, I think, the only way you can do this, there might be this other option. And this other option isn't really clear because it wasn't a step one. You get an agency. step two. You do this. Step three, you do that. It was just the freelance modeling community. And it seemed like a... group of models were all approaching it from their own perspective with a general consensus on a set of like ethics or code that they were operating by. There wasn't a lot of communication between models as far as I knew, because I wasn't a part of it yet. And so I'm looking through all of these models portfolios. I came across a model named Brooklyn who had done a lot of fine art modeling. And I was like, well, I could totally be okay with this. This seems like an option, but I worked with, I went to an agency. I worked with them for a little bit. They had mentioned that I needed to have like long hair and have a very commercial girl next door look. It was not my vibe. I told them that I wanted to shave my head and they were like, no, 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 you can't do that. And I was like, well, actually, you can't tell me what to do. So I'm going to shave my head because I'm my own person. And then I started my freelance modeling journey. Sweet. Yeah. So it's kind of like, I love that. So, And really like my intent over the years, again, when I saw the fine art nude different model way profiles, I realized that like nudity had another space. It wasn't just immediately sexual. It could be beautiful. It could be the shape of the body. It could be ugly. It could be vibrant. It could be passionate. It could be all of these things that I wasn't up until that point in my life had experienced because as like a thin white conventionally attractive female, I just got sexualized all the time. And so when I saw that this other option existed, I was like, I will pursue that to the end of the earth. And I want to create art that, that shares that, that we have a multitude of feelings and emotions that is not just nudity equals sex. And so I feel like over the course of the last decade that I've been doing this, that's the thing that I know that I'm doing. That's the thing that I know that I set out to do and have accomplished because I used to get messages when <laughs> Tumblr existed, in a different capacity from folks that were like, oh, I didn't realize that you could be nude and it not be sexual. I didn't realize that you could be nude and be gender ambiguous. I didn't know that you could be nude and be X. And what I was hearing was that there were more options for them, more possibilities for nudity in their mind than what had existed before. And I was like, yes, that is the world that I wanna live in. That is what I'm doing, yes.
0: So you you are the change that you wanted to see in the world. Yeah.
1: And I'm not saying that every single shoot is like, yeah, hurrah, we're going to do this. Like sometimes you wake up and you're like, I don't want to do anything today. But when I look back, the legacy that I
0: leave behind, this is what I feel like I've imparted. That's really amazing. And it's great to hear from stories of people that didn't feel pressured. Well, maybe you felt pressured to conform, but you didn't comply with the pressure. Like you did what you wanted to do.
1: Yeah. I had some pretty strict rules. Like I, I'm, i you know, be very clear, like I'm very privileged in the position that I sit in because I can be a fashion agency model. I'm five nine. So I'm the conventionally attractive model. And so that gives me a lot of leeway to say, no, I don't want to do that job. Or yes, I want to do this job and also access to jobs. So for me, when I first started modeling, the way that I approached it was I went through Mono and I saw all the categories of genres that they had. I Googled all of them and I was like, Hmm. Okay. That one doesn't really seem like something that I'd be interested in, but anything that, it, that like made me a little bit curious, I put in a list and then I, and attempted to try and schedule some of those shoots. So I could kind of get an idea of like, is that for me or is that not for me? And then eventually I whittled it down to three different genres that I thought I'd be really good at, or that I felt that I had a lot of passion towards. So for me, it's androgyny because I like to like play with well, what do we perceive as masculine? What do we perceive as feminine and why? Neither of those things are good or bad. Like I don't, and I also don't think that they're in competition. So I love having some element of androgyny in my work. So that makes it really easy for me to continue to want to find shoots like that. The other one is fashion or like Euro fashion where you're showing off clothes, but you're not like a clothing rack. You're more like, look at this statement. And nudity can be involved in that, but it's not a very sexualized nudity. It's just like like a good example of that would be if you're wearing boots and a belt and a big sweater, but no pants. Of course, you're going to notice that sweater or notice that belt. And you might even want to buy it because you're like, wow, that's really interesting. It creates this like statement image. And then the other one, of course, is fine art. So that's kind of how I whittled down like what I was interested in and kept the passion going for as long as I did because I wasn't willing to do glamour shoots, ones that I felt were going to be very objectifying from the start. And also my body type didn't feel like it belonged in that space, so I didn't want to fight against the grain. I conserved my energy for other things that I was more passionate about.
0: That's really great. I like to hear that you had the wherewithal to research all the genres and like figure out what you wanted to do. It, s- it seems like you did that early on. Yeah. And over the course of time for me, like I put, found myself being put into a box of, oh, you're only this type of model. And it's like not the genre that I wanted to be aligned with. And and so it, it's great. And it's great advice to other people listening to this that just because People are offering you jobs for a certain type of modeling or for anything, I suppose. It doesn't mean that you have to do it.
1: Yeah. Well, I also don't think that it's a binary. It doesn't have to be an either or. There can be a third option, right? So the way that I always like, looked at shoots for me was, does this take me closer to things that I'm interested in doing? So I'm not going to say no to someone who has predominantly glamour portfolio. What I'll say to them is I don't traditionally shoot glamour. I would be more interested in shooting something that feels like a mix of your style and this style. I'd send them a link of photographs and say, is that doable for us in our shoot? And if it's not, or they're unwilling to to move, then of course that's going to be a no, but it gives us room to collaborate and co-create together. And also, if it is like some like a job that you really need because some expense came up, again, how comfortable would I be? Like at what rate would I be comfortable doing this shoot and what are the terms that I'd be comfortable doing that shoot at? So yeah, for me, I try to make sure that things are not just stuck on a binary of like yes or no, but like what are the things that I need in this moment and how can I collaborate to make that happen?
0: And then that gives the photographer that you're communicating with the uh, opportunity to go outside of their normal range of, like, if they're always shooting glamour, maybe they can shoot something a little different. Yeah. So we wanted to talk a bit about how our industry has progressed over the years where you and I, I think we're close to the same age. We were, You probably started your Model Mayhem somewhere around like 2010 or maybe before or after that, give or take a year or two. Oh, I would be terrible. I'm going to say yes.
1: <laughs> time is kind of like a noodle in my brain. It doesn't work.
0: <laughs> and Model Mayhem has been brought up on this podcast a good handful of times. And it is kind of a crying shame that they haven't really stayed on top of being the best platform that they can be. But it did generate our community or at least support our community for a long time.
1: For sure. So I remember the mentor photographer that I had right when I was getting started telling me about the forming of Model Mayhem and how it was only just a couple of years older than when I'd been introduced to it. And there was a lot of energy behind it and pushing it forward. And then I think they kind of got to a plateau where they were the site and then just didn't care to invest in making it any different or better or even keep up with technology, which, you know, as you mentioned, is is a bit of a shame because there is a bit of a, a potential of like growth there, especially now that COVID and side hustles and gig gig economy is really big. Like that could have grown with it, but I mean, you look at things like Blockbuster and you wonder why they don't exist anymore and it's not adjusting to the contemporary times that we're in.
0: Yeah. And also, I believe something happened about like seven or so years ago where they changed their messaging policy where if you had a free account, you couldn't initiate a message with somebody unless you were already on each other's friends list, which makes it hard if you're a traveling model to communicate with people who don't have paid account.
1: Ooh, I may have missed that because for the longest time I had like a VIP membership. And so anything that may have affected lower tier levels, I didn't or wasn't affected by, but I could see that happening as a way to monetization or to monetize the platform because it is like a money-making business or at least would have to sustain some sort of level of income in order to maintain staff. So it makes sense. Yeah.
0: I mean, I've I've had a VIP account As well, but then the photographers who had free accounts who didn't want to have a paid account because they always had it for free weren't able to contact models with that weren't on their friends list yet, so it affected all of our like messaging capacity, even if we had VIP accounts, people who didn't couldn't message us until we accepted each other as a friend.
1: Ah, so that would really right there alone, push people off of the site onto other sites, which is probably one of the reasons why it's not as active as it used to be.
0: Yeah. I remember back in the day, back in the, awesome days when all you had to do was post a travel notice on Model Mayhem and it would book your entire tour just that way. Back then, I remember when you went to the homepage of Model Mayhem, there's like a number that says that there's this many castings at any given day. Yeah. back then It it was always around like 14,000 or something like that. And today it's like 10% of of the amount of castings on any given day.
1: You know what? That also reminds me like On an average, you could send out about 10 cold emails and and would faithfully get at least seven responses. And maybe half of those would be, yes, maybe leading into a shoot. And half of those would be like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm missing you. But now I send out 10 and I'll get on an average three or four responses.
0: Yeah, it really makes it so that us as models have to share our contact list with each other and we have to like do like you know, investigation on Instagram, learning how to use hashtags to find photographers in certain areas. And it's it's a lot harder to find people that might want to hire us. It's
1: more labor intensive for sure. But I also, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say that's necessarily a problem with models having to come together and communicate and share contacts with each other. Because I think that is something that has been missing is a community of sorts where people share resources and say, hey, I problem solved this way. Or a problem solved that way. Maybe that's not the exact answer for the person in the moment, but it could be a really good resource for
0: them to help build off of. So yeah. We're gonna be
1: opposed to like models connecting with each other and conversing.
0: Definitely. And that is true. That That is a, a blessing of the situation is that we are now communicating a lot more where when when we started back in the earlier 2000s, it was not cool for experienced models to help out newer models that was just not something that was happening back before facebook groups and all of that everybody yeah. was just paving their own way
1: yeah i think there was that like kind of that sense or that feeling that like there was like this competition between the folks that were older that had like carved out this new space that didn't really exist before cuz this is a made up job Yeah, (laughs) we're all just making it up as we go along. Like there's a certain framework. Okay. We both agree to show up to this date and this time and photos will be the result. But how we all get there, what our processes is to like what we're agreeing to or what you deem as professional versus what I deem as professional or even what you would bring in your suitcase could be very different than what I would bring in my suitcase. And all of those circumstances are correct. I mean, as long as the people are leaving happy and um, satiated with their agreements being met, then there's no right or wrong. That's kind of why I joined the community because I can do things the way that suit my needs exactly within a, a certain framework, but it's loose enough to Im- include more people rather than
0: not include. That's, that's very true and very good. And I'm, I'm fully about like outreach to newer models because As, you know, our community becomes stronger and stronger, it is becoming more apparent that, you know, there's things that we all need to be aware of as far as like safety and like just the knowledge that we all need to be like, you know, protected and empowered in what we're doing. And if the experience models were to, you know, shun the newer ones saying, oh, you have to learn it the hard way because I had to learn it the hard way. That's doing a disservice to the community.
1: Absolutely. I mean. I'm where I am today because someone else did work before me. Regardless of if I notice or acknowledge or see it, all the models that that carved out the freelance community that existed before I even became a part of it, that's all work that I'm benefiting from. So it makes sense to me to continue to do some of that work in order for a safer community to exist. So one of the reasons I used to meet with different models, I mean, there's several reasons to meet with models, but like if you're in the same city, in order to set up time between all of our shoots and everything that was going on. So I had a a bunch of questions that I was really curious about. I would always ask, like, there's a model that's in a very different genre her primary domain seemed to be in like fetish work or like darker fine art more gothic style if you want to call it and that's a very different genre that than what i'm known for and so i was curious if there's any like red flags that she noticed in her communities that would be very different than red flags that i might notice within my communities and communication and she shared some of her experiences about certain ways that photographers or potential people who might want to hire her communicated with her that would give her a spidey sense. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. You know, I didn't realize that these kinds of communications in your field are a little different than the expectations that I would have in my field. So that really shared for me how different experiences could be within the same quote unquote job.
0: Yeah. Can you think of any examples of those different types of red flags? So You know, if you're doing a shoot where you're in
1: bondage, the kind of safety and language that you're gonna have is gonna be very different that those needs are gonna be very different than if you're just in a fine art shoot. So like if I'm I don't know, for example, the most risky thing that would need require more communication is if I was shooting outdoors and public land that wasn't privately owned, I would have to have a lot of conversations about what does it look like if someone comes up, or do you need like to touch me? What happens if I'm like stuck in a position and I need help in and out? Where is it appropriate to touch me? Whereas that kind of conversation is a little bit different when somebody is touching you to tie you up or to restrain you in some sort of capacity. And what do those things look like for you to feel safe? What are verbal cues? I don't have to have a lot of those conversations. So I hadn't even occurred to me
0: that they would exist because it wasn't my experience. That makes sense. And then there's things that you like really wouldn't know to ask unless it happened unfortunately and that's how some of us learn through experience i'm just thinking about the the bondage thing and some of my past experiences but and there's definitely like things that have happened where i've learned okay now because of this experience i have the knowledge to set this boundary in advance
1: yeah or like navigate more smoothly at this like what i would consider a sticky point
0: yeah like with Bondage in particular, uh, I'll, I'll set this little example out yeah because the, the bondage photographer or producer or whatever you would refer to them as, they might say, you know just give me a signal or like just say help if you feel uncomfortable if you want to be untied. But then if they put duct tape over your mouth, how are you supposed to yeah. get that signal properly? And, and then you don't know it until you're in that situation.
1: Yeah. See, that's a really good example. So through the experience of having been in that situation, you know in advance that that may not work in that particular situation. So you're going to have to communicate what does a, a like a nonverbal signal look like. Yeah. Well, and I also think. So one of the other things that I think about is from figure models, I've learned, I've learned this. There are certain positions that you can hold for a period of time before your body either gives out, like your arm goes to sleep or your leg goes to sleep, or you start to feel numb or tingly. And so being clear and communicating upfront, Hey, I think I can hold this position for two minutes. I know that we're doing a 10 minute drawing pose. If you don't mind me shaking out my arm every two minutes, then I'm happy to hold this pose for you for 10 minutes. Versus just going into it and, and having to brave it out and, and feeling like you can't, you know, move or shift or change. You know, that's something that I learned over experience of time and being in, in different art
0: circles. Oh, it's okay to like move your limb or readjust if you need to. I totally learned the hard way with that one too. But when you get into <laughs> posing and like you're up front of the class, my first time I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this pose. And they're like, you're going to do that for three minutes. Like, yeah, I can do that for three minutes. And then I, after 40 seconds, I quickly learned that I could not do that for yeah. three whole minutes. Well, and I'm so not you're saying right.
1: that you know, I didn't learn sometimes the hard way either. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, it's really nice to be in a community of people where you can say, hey, you know, I'm just kind of curious, what does this look like for you? And I, yeah. I've reached out to models of all different genres and capacities and like full-time, part-time, just hobbyists or like, just curious and only done it once to learn, you know, what people's experiences were, what perspective they were, you know, looking at the same thing with, because everyone has a different experience.
0: Yeah. And especially when you're working with people who are empathetic towards the model situation, like physically, then that's always the path for a good experience. But there's definitely some people who don't necessarily think about that in advance, not necessarily that they have ill intentions toward the model that they're working with, but perhaps they just don't think to think about that because they're thinking about their creative idea that they want to shoot
1: yeah. and
0: not, you know, how cold it is or how uncomfortable the position is. Yeah. So I love doing this thing. It it tickles me
1: and it's a great icebreaker, but sometimes I'll ask the photographer to Give me an example of what it is like, kind of pose that they were thinking of. Like, I'll give you a better context around that. So, there's this photographer that I worked with in um, Switzerland, and we've been corresponding for quite a long time to work together. And finally, it just was able to happen, and, and delighted me so. And he was very excited. He had a couple of different ideas that he wanted to work on. He had this large like tree branch that he whittled down. It was really beautiful, and he was wedging it in this corner. And so you've got this long spindly like stick situation. And then, of course, a really long spindly stick human. And so he was describing verbally a pose and i just not getting it. I'm very, very bad at verbal instruction. If you tell me left, I'll turn right. It just it does not compute in my head. So I really need the actual person to do the pose that they're asking for, not because I'm being funny, but it's, it's more helpful for me. And so he learned this and then would do some of the poses that he was thinking of. And it helped with the icebreaker and also for him to understand how strenuous some of the things that he was asking for me to do And so that also helps build a bond because then we can be more collaborative. He's like, oh, that's going to be really tough. Do you think you can do that? Oh, if you can do that, I will be ready to shoot as soon as you're ready. And so that really helps them know what they're asking for as well as like be participating in in like being ready. And then the other thing, this really wonderful photographer in Paris, um, her name is Kitty. She (laughs) – I appreciate her so much. She's a very strong Italian woman and and like very opinionated. And what I appreciated her about this particular situation is we went to go outside to photograph. She had this very um, beautiful idea. She wanted me to be in front of a tree. And she was like, Rory, we're going to go outside. I understand it's very cold. You're very tiny. I was like, okay, thanks. Um, And she goes, I'm going to take my shirt off. When I get cold, I know you are cold. We are going inside no ifs, ands, or buts. And I was like, oh, wow, that's a, okay, that's a new one. I appreciate that. And now that is going to be my rule every time. Let's do this. So you have the photographer take off their jacket or their sweater if it's cold out? Yeah, because if they have to bear some skin, then they understand, you know, you get to a point where you're shooting and you're like, okay, I'm cold. And they're like, just five more shots. And it's like, no, I definitely waited. That was my bad. Five more shots ago was when I should have said something. I'm, I am I got to go now.
0: Yeah, the resilience to the cold is definitely a thing. Uh, I would say even sometimes if the photographer is not wearing their their sweater, like they might still have a bit more insulation on their body like, naturally than like one of us might have. Yeah, that's a very good point. But it it does help. I think that it, I think it does help when especially if that action is being taken. All right, you're gonna take off your sweater just so that you can tell how cool the air is. I think that that activity itself would, you know, remind them that, you know, this person in front of you might be shivering and might have goosebumps right now. Yeah. They're like a person. They're experiencing the thing that you're experiencing. Yes. Yes. We are humans, not robots. Oh, I did with that sentiment. I was just thinking
1: about. So it's not for every, like, photo shoot that I have, but for some where I feel like it's extreme cold or an extreme... I don't know temperature difficulty I think the other thing that starting to be more mindful of is if I do a messy shoot or something that would like paint or glitter or heavily made up that like the last 15 minutes of the shoot is required for cleanup time
0: yeah oh right especially because it's going to take time to get stuff out of your hair and like shower off that makes sense
1: I mean, I've been to a couple of different shoots where people are like, oh, I don't have a bathroom or I don't have a shower. And I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> that's
0: happened. Covered in paint. What do you mean? <laughs> ah! Yeah, Like in a perfect world, like all of these things would be communicated in advance. Yeah. But um, sometimes we get ahead of ourselves and we, we don't necessarily like ask all the questions. And it, especially after being experienced for such a long time, I often just assume you know, I I get tired and I'm communicating and I'm setting up a tour and I'm like, oh, they they know what this policy is obvious. Like all the professional models work this way. And then you get there and then it's clear that it wasn't obvious. And you're like, oh, I should have written it all out. Always have it all written out in advance.
1: Yeah. I mean again it just goes from that experience of like oh, okay I've been here great this is what I'm this is what the situation will require. And knowing like what the framework of that so maybe you don't have a shower, maybe you have baby wipes, like is that actually gonna work in that situation? How hard pressed are you? Do you have a host that you're able to shower off at? Or are you just like car camping for the night? What does that look
0: like? Yeah. And I've I've noted that a lot of full-time professional freelance models today. Do have information that kind of spells this stuff out on their own websites or on their bio and their model mayhem, and they'll take you to a link like these are my, you know, like guidelines for how to work with me, and and I think that maybe there needs to be more awareness spread around about that because sometimes photographers don't necessarily read that whole thing, but it's important because it's. It's the shooting parameters that make us feel comfortable in, yeah. in what we're doing.
1: Well, so I love that you brought that up. There are there have been times I noticed predominantly in – well, that's not really fair. I was going to say predominantly in Europe, I've noticed that a lot of times when I reached out to people and they book me to shoot in this last three-week tour that I did with Astrid, a lot of them had read the, the conditions and were repeating some of the things back in agreement with me. I thought, oh, that's really cool. That's very different than what I've experienced in the United States but that's not really a fair assessment because i've taken i have not been full time for the last 3 years here in the united states i've just been kind of dabbling my toes back into it so it's not really a fair assessment but i do like that this one model in their correspondence they will say okay to confirm this shoot i'm linking you to my you know conditions once we move beyond this communication I will know, or that you are agreeing to having read those. If you have not read that, it is not, there's no responsibility on me that is on you at this point. So by having that clearly written in writing as part of their confirmation for the booking, I think that really helps promote, and you can lead a horse to water, it doesn't mean that they'll they'll actually drink, promote the idea that that is a very essential part to like working with the person.
0: Yes, and obviously the cancellation policy is one of the most important parts of that thing that we all hope that photographers will read and will read to. <laughs> yeah.
1: It is unfortunate that there's at least I haven't found that much recourse for enforcing that. There's a couple of things within the community that that are that don't feel as enforceable as I would like them to be. That would be one of them.
0: Yeah, I've dealt with that in the past as well, and I don't require deposits, but I know a lot of people do require deposits from everybody that they work with, but I find that there, there's a lot of these things that are good for models that help us, you know, function in our careers to be able to do it like, you know, at this amount of bookings throughout the course of the year where a lot of photographers that maybe half of the people they work with are new models that are doing a trade basis. A lot of photographers find it annoying that these professional models have these standards of excellence that we want to uphold photographers to hire us to comply with. Like, like, deposits and reading our webpage and agreeing that we're not going to shoot in 30 degree weather and and things like that. And there's not like an entity at B that, that can like, there's not a, like a union, like a formal union, you know, yet. And I've heard models talk about, it would be great if we created um, a union for professional freelance models that kind of upheld photographers that are hiring models that are part of the union to, you know, treat us in the way that we are hoping to be treated. But there, I, I also, I, I see the idea of a union as great, but I also see it as, you know, potentially a turnoff for some photographers that want to hire us. And if we're traveling and we're trying to make as many bookings as we can, then having extra hurdles seems like it could potentially hurt our pockets. So it's definitely something to, I think that it could be positive and beneficial, like if it caught on. Yeah. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I think like anything, any sort of big change. I think it's like a pendulum, right? So like there's this push for a change, a desire and need for a change. It gets to a head, then a change is announced, and then there will be a period of time that people are acclimating to the change. So usually when that happens, people swing in the opposite direction, but then it becomes an industry standard. So for example, there was a time when the rate was a hundred dollars an hour, and And like people were struggling with, you know, upping or keeping consistently their rate at a hundred dollars an hour. And then it went to 125 and there was a lot of lash back at that. And I'm sure there was a lot of, you know, disparaging conversation around that or photographers that flat, right. Like outright decided that they weren't going to pay that rate. And then eventually that became the industry standard so much so that it's now 150 per hour. So, you know, I think that It really just takes a group of people to decide and move forward together in unison. And I think that's, what's nice about having more models and more models communicate with each other is that we can more rapidly make those decisions. We don't need to wait for a union. We are the union
0: as we communicate with each other. That's, that, that's what a union is. <laughs> yeah. You know, I suppose there doesn't have to be a legal entity backing it necessarily, yeah. as long as we're all, you know, setting the example by communicating with each other and yeah. then putting those expectations out when people are looking to hire us. Especially like the folks that have been
1: in the industry for longer that bear the most responsibility because, for example, like I'm in a very privileged place. Whatever I say, impresses upon a person who hires me as the standard because they may be putting me up on this pedestal saying, oh, this person's been in the industry for 10 years and I really appreciate their work and I appreciate working with them. And there's a certain level of um, wanting to meet me because I've been not meet me as in like meet me in person, but meet me collaboratively where I'm at or what I'm saying is the standard because of the work that I've done for the last 10 years. And the benefit of that is not being challenged or questioned in some of those ways. So when I say, Hey, I want to do this thing, I realize that it does also affect people behind me. So even if I'm scared to do it, or even if I don't think it's a norm, but I I think it should be a norm. And that's kind of my responsibility to make that happen given time and space and resources, of
0: course. That's true. and, and it, it you do set the standard of ethics and the standard of, oh my gosh, what's the word that I was looking for? Help me out here. when the when you're interacting with somebody, there's ways that are appropriate and ways that are inappropriate to interact. I would say like boundaries are like the framework for the for like the container that you're operating in. Yes, boundaries, and oh my gosh, there's a word that I'm looking for. I'm the word that just, I'll remember at two o'clock in morning, and I'll be like, "Oh, it's this word." It's not ethics, and it is. It involves ethics, and it's not boundaries, like but a moral it moral code. Boundaries. Moral code, or oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate when that happens. I'm sorry. Etiquette etiquette Etiquette. yes shoot etiquette there's so many people and especially photographers who are newer getting into photography that do Mm -hmm, listen mm -hmm. to this podcast so let's bring up some of the 101 etiquette things that every photographer should know at a shoot and perhaps etiquette things that a model should know as well well okay so
1: I I think like most basic is like do what you agreed to do (laughs) If you agreed to shoot at this location at this time, then be there, be ready. Great. Yes. Pay what you agreed to pay. Great. Have your model release at the end of the shoot ready to be signed. Great. I prefer not to sign them at the beginning of the shoot because I'm not sure, especially if I'm meeting someone new, I'm not sure where the shoot's going to end. And also like when you sign a model release, you're consenting to all the poses that you've You've captured, and sometimes not unintentionally, but sometimes images that can be a little bit more explicit than what I intended. I don't want to sign that away right off the get-go, so I'd right. rather keep that negotiation power until the end when we're both in a good, comfy space and saying, "Okay, cool, yeah, the shoot did go really well, and I am consenting to giving you the rights to all the images."
0: That's good advice.
1: Yeah. And there, you know, again, if it's like someone that I've worked with before and I have a good rapport with that, I know that if I'm like, Hey, I don't want to, I don't want that image, then I don't mind signing a model release at the beginning because we've already built that rapport together. Yes. Let's see. Snacks and bottles of water are, are not expected, but they are really nice. Cause that tells me that you see me as a person, a human being that has needs, not just a machine that's there to fulfill an obligation for you. like I want to create with you, but I also need to be seen as a human being in order to
0: be able to do my job to the fullest potential. I love these. Um, Let's see. Other ones that I'm thinking of etiquette-wise. Oh, right. This one is usually always obvious and there are some exceptions, but don't touch the model is yeah. kind of a baseline, you know. Like we don't generally need to be touched. We can a- adjust our own like hair or bra straps. There's exceptions, like if you're upside down in some weird <laughs> twisted position, and you can yeah. physically move your hair. You're like, yes, but then always ask, is it okay if I touch your hair? Yeah. I've ha- I've had some of those where the photographer just assumes that it's okay. And and then sometimes it is, but yeah. sometimes it's not. <laughs>
1: Especially like when you're in a space where you feel really vulnerable, like I've come to a new studio. I'm not familiar with the space. I am not sure who the person is. I'm just getting to know them. And so it's like an intimate bubble. You're touching me as a person. Would you on a like first time meeting someone go up to them and adjust their glasses on their face? Probably not. So your intent is to is for the image to be really good. And that's my intent there too, but I'm also a human being. So I need that space in order to be able to be fully vulnerable, which is what the camera requires for me, to be able to get into my body and my emotions and my emoting ability. And we disrupt that when we fail to see our co-creators as humans.
0: Yes. I would say that everything with etiquette kind of goes back to just treating the people that you're working with as equal human beings and not just as you know, your art subject that is performing for you. So I mean, it does, we look- don't defer to that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like I, I, I love that we can put it in this concise way of like, here's the umbrella thing of it. It's like, just treat human beings like human beings, but you're right. Sometimes it can be really hard to know what the specifics of that are. Like, you know, if it's a two hour shoot asking the person, like for me, a, a perfect shoot would be like, Cool. We've agreed to meet at this time at this place. Great. I get there five minutes early and they're there and they're ready. They've shown me where a bottle of water is, where the changing station is, where the makeup table is. I've gotten a mini tour so I know the layout of the land so that if I need anything, I can go meet my own needs. I don't have to stop in the middle of shoot and go, Hey, where's the bathroom? And then they say, okay, here's the couple of ideas that I have, or here's the spaces that we might create in. And then you can go over whatever wardrobe you might have. And then you... Shoot for maybe 10, 15 minutes and then review images so that you kind of are building a language together of, okay, this is what you're looking at in an image. Great. I'm really going to pay attention to my hands because that's what I hear is really important to you. Cool. Or what did you like about that image? Oh, you really like the way that the shadow is covering the face. Okay, I'll be more mindful. I will do more things where my face is in shadow or ambiguous. So you're really building that language and container together. And then you get another 10 or 15 minutes and then you get a break where you're eating a snack. And then you get another 10 or 15 minutes doing, you know, the different things. But that's kind of like, in my mind, an ideal shoot where someone is really communicative. They're asking for your opinion. They're wanting you to participate as not just like an object. And they're mindful that you're a human being. You might need a break or you might need to cool down or go to the bathroom. And there's space for those things where you're not like, okay, we've only got two hours. Let's crank it out. Do this. And it's like. Okay. I appreciate that you're very productive and when you invest time, effort, and energy into resources, you want to make sure that it is productive for you. But I'm also a human being and I don't I'm not a racehorse. I can't I can't be doing yes. that.
0: I have had both of those types of shoots, the relaxed one and then the really rushed one. The really rushed ones are the reason why I charge more for just a two-hour shoot per hour. And yeah. then the more hours people book, the more of a discount they get. Uh,
1: Yeah, I agree with you because I find those ones to be more stressful. Like there's more pressure applied to the two hours. So I've always, in order to kind of like what you were saying for my own peace of mind, generally speaking, when I write people, I will tell them here, I'm booking in three or four hour slots and I'm happy to give them a better rate for that amount because then we can be more relaxed. Then we can expand like, Like people are not as easy to dismiss a rabbit hole of like, hey, what would happen if we did this? And that's the most fun to me. That's when we're really creating art because art is solving problems and asking questions.
0: Yeah, and going outside the box.
1: Absolutely. And if you don't have space for that in your shoot, then what are you producing? What is the intent? Are you just creating specific needs like, oh, I want to get this thing for Instagram or oh, I want to get this like video or whatever for this specific thing because you have such a limited window of time together.
0: Yeah, exactly. We're getting closer to the hour and I still wanted to ask you another type of question before we go. It's called the rising phoenix moment of your life. Can you describe something, whether it's related to your modeling or something else in your life where you were faced with some kind of a challenge that you had to overcome, whether it was career related or about self confidence. What is your rising phoenix moment in life? Ooh, so <laughs> that's a, that's kind
1: of like again the reason why I got into like modeling in the first place was that. I'd pent up so much negative energy from the limitation that I perceived people giving me. I understood that they were trying to give me a compliment, but a compliment in their eyes was very limiting in my eyes. So they're like, you should be a model. And it's like, but I'm a whole person. I could be artist. I could be an author. I could want to be into data research. Like when you tell me that I'm only good for this one thing, it feels so limiting. And it really started to become consuming to me. And that's why I was so adverse to wanting to model in the first place. But then when I discovered that there were other genres that I could dive into and that I didn't have to be that one thing, then it really gave me the opportunity to explore, okay, what if I conserve some of my energy and I, I don't go against the grain? I do the thing that everyone is telling me I should go do. Okay. But how can I approach it from a way that will solve problems in my life that will give me creative fulfillment or the ability to travel? I dropped out of high school. It just wasn't for me. School was not a good way for me to learn. I'm more very like hands-on. And I'm really glad to hear that because I'm feeling like the more creative people that I meet that are in the freelance community, the more that resonates. I'm like, oh, okay. So that's not just me. I'm not this isolated event. I'm just like school is set up for some people that it works really well, but it just didn't work for me. And so you know, overcoming that perception of like, well, modeling can only be this one thing. And I was like, no, modeling can be whatever journey I want it to be. That's why it's freelance. So I will empower myself to go and see the world, to go and have these experiences, to go and do all the things that I didn't have access to. So when you drop out of high school or you don't go to college, there are like society will tell you, oh, well, you don't really get access to this job or to that job. Or you don't get to have these kinds of resources. And it's like, oh, well, I always wanted to travel. How am I going to make that happen? Well, freelance modeling gave me the opportunity. It empowered me to learn boundaries and consent and design a container that would make me feel safe or that I could want to be vulnerable. It also gave me the space to like explore different emotions that the world says, oh, well, you can't be mad or, oh, you can't be sad. It gave me space to explore and also uh, visual to point out and go, oh, that's what I felt then. It was a lot of things for me in this journey of like a decade.
0: Yeah. I resonate with a lot of that too. I didn't know that you were also a high school dropout, but yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of really famous, well-known people who did not complete high school and they went forward to be very successful and change the world. So Yeah. No- needs it? You know, you don't, you don't have to do what everybody says that you're supposed to do. You don't have to complete college. And if you're a model, it doesn't mean you have to have an agent or like work for a magazine or because a lot of people still think that that's what a model is. Our little freelance community is still really small, but yeah, we love it. And it's empowered us to do all this amazing travel and like, you know, influencing our friends and like yeah, just expressing ourselves because we didn't really have the same avenue of self-expression before. Like there, there are obviously different kinds of art. You know, we could express ourselves through music and painting, but there's definitely a, a different vibe to expressing through your actual body.
1: Yeah. And also I felt like there's, you know, some artists that talk about being in the flow state. And I've experienced that being collaborative, working with other people, getting into a space together where we're like, I don't know if you've experienced this particular phenomenon, but it's almost like a photographer is about to ask you to move a limb or turn your face and you're already doing it. Yes. And that like, oh, has happened. <laughs> wait a minute. Did we just this energy we both synced up and I could read your mind and we're on the same page. That's wild. And for me, yes. that is like such a beautiful experience.
0: It is. And it, it when it's working that well, like there is definitely a flow state where like time doesn't seem to pass so mm-hmm. like like agonizingly, like the time just kind of flies and you're not thinking about like other problems in your life or whatever. When you're having a good shoot, you're just thinking about creating and what you are creating.
1: Absolutely. I live for those moments and I know those shoots exist. I've experienced them and do experience them today. They're just rare gems.
0: Yeah. It's like with freelance modeling, one of the, the hardest lessons that I had to learn like early on is that like, there's not a big break. Like, it's not America's Next Top Model. Like I mean, you could, like, you know, win a sponsorship or whatever. But, like, overall, like, your career is made up of a bunch of small gigs. And then some of them are really awesome and some of them are just, you know, Yeah, you know, but they're not always going to be like the most spectacular. Like you're not you're not going to be getting famous from any one shoot necessarily. Like you have to enjoy the process of all the photo shoots.
1: So I've always measured it like I love that you said that because I think sometimes we get really hung up on this binary of like yes I'm going to take that shoot or no I'm not going to take that shoot because it doesn't tick all of my boxes. And for me, I would look at it like. Does this take me closer to the goals of what I what I'm envisioning my career to look like? Does this fulfill other needs that I might have, like a location or wardrobe or makeup thing um, as all parts of the process and journey and goal versus like, is this exactly what I want to get hired for? No, then I'm not going to take it. Like that didn't really seem to be benefiting anybody. And sometimes I could be wrong. Like I could say, oh, uh, maybe I'm not interested in working with this particular person. And then later see a photo series that they did with someone else and go, oh, I misjudged that person or I misjudged that person's work. And that would be a good collaborative space for me to exist in. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's all a learning process. And there is definitely some, like giving the benefit of the doubt to people, especially when they're new, you know, that are going to, it's going to be a, you know, at least a productive time between the two of you, whether or not you create something epic or not. You don't always have to be creating something epic. Yeah.
1: Finding, leaning into
0: curiosity and finding something new that could
1: be exciting for you during that shoot is definitely a good way to keep that exciting. So you're not always like trying to up the ante. <laughs> I I do find myself in competition with myself, but then I'm like, oh, but I've already done that. Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I've already done that. I could do that through a different lens, through a different perspective. What am I doing new in this particular space and time?
0: There's definitely like, because you've had this like part of your life where You went through your rebellion stage towards the beginning where you were getting into modeling and now you've made it so that this is your full-time thing. Even though you mentioned that the last three years it hasn't fully been full-time, you're still making an income as a freelancer and traveling. And in a sense, do you feel like you have made it
1: Okay. So I struggle with that particularly because I think if in my brain, I hit a plateau where I was like, cool, I've made it. Then I wouldn't continue to be hungry to see what's around the next corner. I wouldn't be motivated to like explore what could be next. So while I would say that I really love the body of work that I've created already, there's so much more for me to explore that it makes me excited to want to continue doing that. And I've always maintained, cause Vivian Westwood was a huge hero of mine, particularly for this specific reason. I think she was 70, she shot with Jurgen Teller, and it was a very explicit spread where she was laying on this couch. I mean, the meme, shoot me like your French girls comes to mind, but she was fully nude and fully explicit. And I was like, if you can be 70 and, position yourself in a way that these are very erotic photos, then who's going to tell me that I have a shelf life? I will model until I'm 100 if I live to be that old with my asinine (laughs) climbing trees willy-nilly situation.
0: (laughs) Awesome. I love to hear that. That's amazing. And that's a a great positive note to end on, I think. um, Thank you so much for doing this podcast with me. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I hope we can meet in real life. Bye. Bye. (laughs) <laughs> I hope so too. Thank you so much, and I hope
1: you and Astrid have a great workshop in Florida.
0: Ah, oh, thanks, Rory. So All right, for y'all. Yeah, absolutely. I'll talk to you soon. All right, bye.